Ladies and gentlemen, uh, sorry about getting started uh, a little bit late. Thank you for your patience. Uh, good afternoon, and welcome to the Cato Institute and the uh, F.I. Hayek Auditorium. Uh, my name is Will Wilkinson. I'm a research fellow here at the Institute and editor of Cato and Bound, the Institute's online magazine of big ideas, which you can find at cato-unbound.org. Uh, thanks to all of you for coming out today. Uh, and joining us for what I'm sure will be an eye-opening discussion. Uh, this is both an exciting and, uh, for some of us, nerve-wracking time uh, for people interested in American electoral politics. Uh, in less than two months, Americans will go to the polls and elect a new president. And who that's going to be is far from clear at this point. Uh, since the Republican conventions... Uh, just a week or so ago, uh, McCain and Obama seem to have flipped in the polls, and this horse race is shaping up for another photo finish, to use a sturdy trope of political reporters. Um, indeed, political journalists uh, like sturdy tropes, like horse race. Uh, uh, they have tight deadlines and not a lot of time for literary invention, and so uh, uh, journalists uh, rely a lot on tropes, catchphrases, and analytical shortcuts. And since the hotly contested uh, Bush-Gore election of 2000, uh, one of the chief uh, sort of analytical frameworks in American political discussion has been the division between red states and blue states, which I'm sure you're all uh, fully familiar with. You know, uh, red states are full of evangelical Christians, Walmart shopping, NASCAR fans with six kids, and... Uh, Blue states are full of overeducated, latte-sipping, atheist cosmopolitans with designer eyeglasses. Um, I guess people like me. Um, <laughs> and therein is the difference between the Republican and the Democratic voter. Uh, at least that's the cartoon version. Uh, it turns out that the cartoon, uh, so beloved of the chattering class, is uh, based on a number of myths and misconceptions and we are gathered here today to clear our heads of the cartoon view of American politics and get a real grip, to get clear on the real patterns and trends in the American electorate. So that's why we've brought you Andrew Gelman, who is joined today by one of his co-authors, Boris Shore, and another of his co-authors in the audience, Stephen Park, uh, to discuss their new book, Red State, Blue State, Rich State, Poor State, Why Americans Vote the Way They Do. It was uh, released yesterday from Princeton University Press. Uh, what we'll do uh, this afternoon is uh, let Andrew uh, take uh, a few minutes to dispel the myths of the American voting public, and then we'll hear comments from uh, Michael P. McDonald uh, of George Mason University and the Brookings Institution, and from Cato's own Brink Lindsay. Bora Shore of the University of Chicago will be on hand to help field your questions in the question and answer part of the proceeding. Uh, I'll introduce each of the speakers uh, briefly before uh, they take their turn. Um, so for now, allow me to introduce our main speaker, uh, Andrew Gelman. Andrew Gelman, to my left here, is a professor of statistics and political science at Columbia University. He has received the Outstanding Statistical Application Award from the American Statistical Association, the award for best article published in the American Political Science Review, and the Council of Presidents of Statistical Societies Award for Outstanding Contributions by a Person Under the Age of 40. His previous books include Bayesian Data Analysis. It's a real page-turner. Uh, and, uh, well, for people like me, it is. And Teaching Statistics, 
a bag of tricks. Andrew has done research on a wide range of topics, including why it's rational to vote, why campaign polls are so variable when elections are so predictable, why redistricting is good for democracy, uh, reversals of death sentences, police stops in New York City, the statistical challenges of estimating small effects, and many, many more topics. Uh, I'll introduce his colleague, uh, Boris Shore, now as well. Boris is an assistant professor at the Harris School for Public Policy Studies at the University of Chicago. He received his PhD in political science from Columbia University after researching Eastern European political and economic reform at Freedom House. Boris is currently studying the links between public opinion, elite ideology, and policy. So please help me give a warm welcome to Andrew Gelman. Um, here's the map of the 2004 election. It's up there? No? Here it comes. Okay. <clears throat> I'm going to show you the map of the 2004 election in a moment. Um, <clears throat> what, what I'm going to do in the next 20 minutes or so is um, resolve the paradox uh, revealed by this map. Now here you see the blue states that are filled with rich Starbucks-sipping Democrats and the red states with their regular guy middle American Republicans. And as TV pundit Tucker Carlson said last year, okay, but here's the fact that nobody ever, ever mentions. Democrats win rich people. Over 100000 income, you're likely more than not to vote for Democrats. People never point that out. Rich people vote liberal. We don't know what that's all about. Well, actually, though, Tucker was wrong. Um, rich people vote Republican. And what the paradox we want to resolve is that Democrats win rich states and Republicans win rich voters, and the converse that Republicans win poor states while Democrats win poor voters. What's actually happening? We, we want to explode the stereotypes about voting and look at what the elections and polls actually say. Now, the first thing is the map isn't lying. The Democrats really are doing better in rich states. Um, here's a plot showing all... Um, all 50 states, Democrats, um, <coughs> Bush won the 15 poorest states. They're the ones on the left of the graph, 15 of the, poor, the 15 states that were the poorest, and <coughs> of um, starting with nearly 60% of the vote in Mississippi, which is the poorest state. At the other end, Kerry and Bush before and Gore before him won in Connecticut and eight of the 10 next richest states. So when people look at the red-blue map, it's not an optical illusion or anything like that. There really is something going on. But within, every, within any state, rich people still vote Republican. Um, if rich people were a state, they'd vote like Alabama, Kansas, or Texas. If poor people were a state, they'd vote like Massachusetts, even though Massachusetts is much richer than Alabama, Kansas, or Texas. Uh, these, you can see the data from exit polls, in 2004, you see something similar in the House, House elections, that in all the regions, as you get richer, uh, you become more likely to vote Republican. Rich states go Democratic, but rich people vote Republican. Um, poor states are Republican strongholds, but poor people mostly vote for the Democrats. And how is that, ha how is that possible? And out of this paradox, which is a real paradox, comes all these stereotypes um, and comes the confusion um, that we that will refer to. <coughs> now, our project started with an article that David Brooks wrote that I'm sure many of you all are aware of that appeared after the 2000 election. 
And he went from wealthy, liberal Montgomery County, Maryland, to rural conservative Franklin County in Pennsylvania. It was a short drive away, but distant in attitude and values, with no Starbucks, no Pottery Barn, no Borders or Barnes & Noble, a lot fewer sun-dried tomato concoctions on restaurant menus, and a lot more meatloaf platters. <laughs> now, Brooks's article stirred a lot of debate, and we naively thought we could come and clean things up. Um, we knew he was talking about red and blue states and red and blue counties, but what about the poll results showing that rich people vote Republican? We had this idea that we'd made a, make a graph that would show both things at once. So we would resolve, resolve the paradox by showing simultaneously what happens in rich states and in poor states. And in doing that, I put together a team of students who are now all professors, uh, Boris, uh, David Park, Joe Bufumi, and Geronimo Cortina. And much to our surprise, it didn't come out the way we thought it would. And we expected to find that some states are... We expected to find that some states go for the Democrats, some go for the Republicans, but that within each state there's a consistent pattern of rich people voting Republican and poor people voting Democratic. We didn't find that. What we actually found was that in poor states, income predicts Republican vote very strongly, but in rich states, there's not much connection with income and how you vote. And we'll get back to that because I think that's part of the reason for the confusion among journalists on, the, on this topic. So the bad news was we did that it was more complicated than we thought. The good news is that it became this this book because we discovered so many things in order to in or, in our attempt to do something simple. <coughs> now let's start with Maryland, uh, David Brooks's home, and we um, he wrote like upscale areas everywhere. Montgomery County supported the Democratic ticket by a margin of sixty three to thirty four percent, and here's this graph shows you. We have the, the, the counties and the, of Maryland and the city of Baltimore. For each one, I'm plotting the Bush's share of the vote versus the, uh, how rich the county was, the average household income in the county. And Montgomery County is almost the richest county in Maryland, and it's one of the most democratic. There's Baltimore, um, Prince George's down there. Um, within Maryland, um, you can find this pattern that, that Brooks found, and I have no quarrel with, with him. Uh, I think he did some reporting, and he found some, what he found was something that was counterintuitive, the idea that going to a poor place but they're still Republican, but that has become the new conventional wisdom. Now, to continue with some fact-based stereotyping, here is uh, Walmart and Starbucks. So different parts of the country really do feel different. Um, they you, you see Walmart spreading out from its home in Arkansas and Starbucks spreading out from its home in, in Seattle. Um, <clears throat> there are differences between different parts of the country in how they vote and how they consume. So there is something real going on. Um, now let's consider Texas. Now, it would have been difficult for David Brooks to drive from a rich county in Texas to a poor county in Texas and get the same contrast that he got on the East Coast. The richest county in Texas is Collin County. It's a suburb of Dallas. Um, and the poorest county is Savala County. It's a rural county with many Latinos, um, highly um, democratic. In between, there's, there's Austin, um, uh, sort of halfway been in between the two. In Texas, as in much of red America, there's a very strong connection between where you live 
and how you vote, and it goes like this. People who live in upscale areas are Republican, and people who live in poorer areas are more likely to be Democrats. The red-blue divide in Texas is real, but it's much different from the red-blue divide in Maryland and Pennsylvania. Now, <laughs> we don't want to set up a battle of the stereotypes and see which one wins. We want to see the ways in which different patterns are true in different parts of the country. And our theme is that context matters. Um, in poor states, rich people vote much more Republican than poor people, but in rich states, they don't differ so much in how they vote. The differences between red states and blue states are real, but they occur mostly among rich voters, not poor voters. Um, <coughs> so to say another way here, um, your income does matter. It is very predictive, but it's predictive in different ways in different places. In particular, it's different in Maryland around here than it is in Texas. Um, and <coughs> here's our, our summary. Uh, Boris calls this the Anna Karenina, um, that all poor people are the same, but rich people are all different. <laughs> um, so <coughs> Miss, Mississippi, the poorest state, there's a very strong relationship between your income and how you vote. Uh, in Connecticut, the richest state, rich and poor people alike vote very similarly. In Ohio, which is a middle-income state, a swing state, things are right in between. That's our, that's our, big, our big finding. Um, these effects are systematically true. It's not just that we happen to pick three states to make our picture look so cool. Uh, here we're plotting the slope, which is basically the difference in how rich and poor people vote in states, the richest, poorest state of Mississippi down to the richest state of Connecticut. There's a, there's a, a clear pattern that as the states get richer, the effect of income goes down. Let's look at it another way. Um, <coughs> what if they hold it, held the election and only counted the votes of rich people? That's the upper graph. Um, <coughs> Kerry would have won four states. New York, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and California. So among the rich, what are you saying? Well, the real liberal elites there, the rich liberal elites are going for Kerry. All the, in all the other states, Bush would have won the, the votes of the upper, um, this I think the upper 5% of income. Um, <coughs> the um, middle, um, at, if the middle-income voters, it looks a lot more like the graph that we actually saw. So among middle-income voters, it's um, Bush wins uh, in much of the country. Kerry wins in some of these other states. As you can see, Kerry's now winning in some states like Illinois, Michigan, Maine, uh, Washington, and Oregon, states which are not completely the liberal elites. At the middle income, you're getting a new sort of layer of states voting for Kerry. The Democrats are getting middle-income voters from these somewhat liberal states, but not, as I said, not the most, most elite, no offense to Boris at the University of Chicago, but Illinois, not quite as much of a liberal elite state as New York or California. Moving on to that next level of states like Minnesota and Illinois. Now when we go to poor voters, <laughs> the lowest one-sixth of income, you see that <clears throat> um, Bush is, is winning only in a narrow strip of states in the center of the country, and Kerry is winning almost everywhere else. So what does this say? Among the rich voters, this red-blue divide is just like the stereotype. It's just it's these extreme places where people manage to, manage to vote for the Democrats. Um, and in all the rest, it's the Republicans. Among the poor, it's not, you don't, it's, it's not that red-blue divide. It's not a divide between the elites and the non-elites. 
um, or the rich states and the poor states, we also saw that with, with numbers on the right, that the pattern between state income and how you vote is, disappears among poor voters. So rich state, poor state is all about rich voters. <coughs> now, so, so far, we've explained the paradox, um, how rich and poor mean different things in different parts of the country. Now I want to explain how people could have gotten this wrong. So I have a, have a couple of quotes. Nicholas Kristof, from a, a liberal and a conservative, <coughs> Nicholas Kristof said, one of the Republican Party's major successes over the last few decades has to pers- been to persuade many of the working poor to vote for tax breaks for billionaires. Um, <coughs> Michael Barone, on the other side, wrote, who are the trust funders? People with enough money not to have to work for a living or not to have to work very hard. These people tend to be very liberal politically, aware that they have done nothing to earn their money. They feel a certain sense of guilt. They are citizens of the world with contempt for those who feel chills up their spines when they hear the star-spangled banner. Now, <coughs> how... <coughs> As I've sort of demonstrated by just throwing numbers and graphs at you, these statements aren't, aren't really correct. I mean, many, sure, many of the working poor vote for Republicans, but, but most don't. Most vote for Democrats. Sure, some trust funders, trust funders vote for Democrats, but most of the people at the high end of the income scale, most of the super rich, vote Republican. So... You have two very knowledgeable commentators. I mean, Michael Barone in particular is, knows more about American politics than I will, will ever know. Um, and so how could they get things wrong? And this is interesting, right? When very smart, well-paid experts get things right, that's boring. But when a very smart person who knows more than I do gets something wrong, that's interesting. There must be some reason for that, that, that they believe that. And, and, and how could they be? They, they see the same poll funding findings I see, and yet they're making statements which, to me, do not seem to be supported by the data. Um, <coughs> now, David Brooks, I've talked about, he, he sort of, in the sense, got things wrong, but not quite. He presented part of the picture. David Brooks told us a lot of real things about what's going on in Maryland and Pennsylvania, things that we should know about. I'm very happy that David Brooks wrote his article and put the culture war sort of on the front page, in this, this version of the culture war. But what he didn't capture was that things are different in Texas. What he didn't capture is that things are different in other in- income groups. Similarly, <coughs> Thomas Frank in What's the Matter with Kansas... Um, he, he had a, a lot of interesting things to say about the Republican part, of, part in Kansas, but whatever is causing Kansas to vote Republican, and by the way, Kansas has been voting Republican for over 60 years, it's not, it's not the poor people who are making it happen, it's, it's the rich people. Um, and you can see this here, uh, the richer you are the, in Kansas, the more likely you are to vote for, the, vote for Bush. Now, how is it that experts can make such mistakes? Um, When I I tell my students uh, (coughs) that in scientific inquiry, you have to answer four questions. First, what's your evidence? Second, how does this fit in with everything else you know? Third, what have you found that's new? And finally, how did all those predecessors get things wrong? They're probably smarter than you, so how did they get it wrong? And I've talked to... spend most of my time talking about items one, two, and three, but now I want to talk a little bit about item four. And <coughs> the, the, small, the, the smallest differences between rich and poor are in the rich states, and that's where the national media live. So I think it might really be easy, easier for 
national elite media to not realize the big differences between our rich and poor vote because where they live, <coughs> there's less of that. And let me expand on this briefly. Um, so here, here's a quote from <coughs> attributed to the uh, movie critic of The New Yorker. I can't believe Nixon won. I didn't know anybody who voted for him. Now, this, this quote, if true, would illustrate uh, what psychologists call availability bias, and that if you don't know anyone who voted for him, maybe nobody did. Now, nobody in this room, and certainly Nicholas Kristof and Michael Barone, would make a mistake like this, because we're aware of the survey findings. We read the newspapers, or we read the blogs, maybe. Um, <laughs> but there's a more subtle mistake you can make. So again, um, Barone, who again I'm, I'm picking on because... He is such an expert, um, that, which makes it so interesting. It evidently irritates many liberals to point out their party gets heavy support from super-affluent people of fashion and does not run very well among common, the common people. Well, <coughs> I looked at data from a survey of journalists. In that survey, there's a positive correlation between income and, voting for, and being a Democrat. Richer journalists are more likely to be Democrats. Uh, I think richer journalists are more likely to work for major papers in, 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 big, in big cities. Um, Lower-income journalists are more likely to be Republicans. Well, they're still more likely to be Democrats, but they're less more likely to be Democrats. <laughs> um, <coughs> uh, the number one political affiliation of, Democrats is un- of reporters is unaffiliated. Democrats is number two. Republicans is, is, is a far last. <laughs> but there is this correlation. So Michael Barone sees this in his life. He is an unusual elite journalist who's a Republican, but I think most of his colleagues who he knows and respects are Democrats. But then he knows... So he's reasoning like this. <clears throat> My friends are high-income Democrats. Then there's the average. So on the other side, there must be a bunch of low-income Republicans to balance us out. Well, it turns out it's not right. It doesn't quite work that way, but it's a natural way to think, and we call that a second-order availability bias. You're generalizing from observed correlations. You see these correlations in your life, and you generalize wrongly. Um, And it makes sense. It just happens to be wrong. This stuff is difficult, right? That's my point, the take-home message. Michael Perrone can get it it wrong. It's not easy. That's why we had to do all the research and, and get our surprising findings. (laughs) So, so far, we've explained the paradox, how context matters, and how this is tied into popular misunderstandings. And now I want to explain what this means for for American politics. And first, I want to put it in historical context. The the red-blue map is news, okay? So... Things didn't used to be that way. This is the 1976 election. Um, This is actually the first one that I remember clearly. Um, there's no relation between state income and how the states vote. So all the journalists who've been yammering on about the red states and blue states since 2000, about rich areas going Democratic and poor areas being Republican, they've made a contribution. That is indeed a new pattern that was not occurring before. It it really is new, so it's good that it was in the news. Um, But rich voters remain Republican. <laughs> rich, rich people have been voting Republican consistently since the 1940s. So if you look at that graph, I'm showing the difference between, <coughs> um, how ri- the difference between rich and poor, the rich-poor gap in voting for Republicans. The only time it really fell was in the 50s and 60s. In the 50s, <coughs> um, Eisenhower's most notable move was to not get rid of Social Security in the 60s, in the early 60s, John F. Kennedy's most famous economic activity was a tax cut. And so the voters were responding to that by 
by minimizing the difference between rich and poor people are pretty much voting the same. Since the 60s and 70s, we've moved back to a New Deal era, 1940s pattern of class-based voting. So it's, it's been happening consistently, and it's still happening. It's not just about the South. Uh, that's one of the things we talk about in our book. It's happening outside the South as well. <laughs> so rich states, <coughs> um, and this is the graph um, showing that rich states have become more Republican um, more rich states have become more democratic, and then that's news. So rich states now go for the Democrats, and they didn't used to. Um, and we need to we need to explain how that could be, and also we need to explain how that could be happening now. So this is news. So we we have a lot to explain because any explanation we have, if we if it's too good an explanation, it'll explain what it'll wrongly say it happened in the 1970s also, and it didn't used to happen. So it sort of puts us in the spot, but we, we like to be there. I mean, <laughs> what this graph is showing is the gap between rich and poor states. Um, the lines show rich, middle, and low-income voters. And what we're showing is that <laughs> since the 50s, there's become a very large red-blue divide, a divide between rich and poor states, but that's been isolated mostly among the rich voters, uh, a little bit among the middle-income voters, but not really among the poor at all. So that's what we're trying to explain. That's what we called our paper earlier, What's the Matter with Connecticut? Okay, What's going on, not about America, red and blue America, but what's going on with red and blue rich America? What's new? What's happening now that wasn't happening in the 60s, wasn't happening in the 70s, wasn't happening in the 80s, but has been happening since the era of Bill Clinton? That's what we have to understand. That's, that's what we're aiming for. Um, <clears throat> some incomplete explanations. Well... Is, is it that rich people now are Democrats? Rich people have become liberal? No. Rich people still vote Republican. Is it race? Um, <clears throat> well, race explains some of it. But when we do our analysis with just whites, we still see this pattern. Um, <clears throat> is it just the South? No, it's not just the South. We see the pattern outside the South as well. Finally, what about income inequality? Income inequality is a very, <coughs> very interesting relationship to all these other things, but it does, not, it does not explain these patterns. The states that were, <coughs> the richest states now are the states that were richest 80 years ago. The poor states now were the poor states 80 years ago. The states have, have stayed where they are in their, pretty much in their relative positions. Um, <coughs> and it's, we're still seeing this new pattern, this, this news. So what's our answer? Um, well, our, uh, the, the first step is that <coughs> um, ideologically, rich and poor people look different in rich states and in poor states. So let's start with poor states. Start, um, in poor Republican-leaning states, rich people are much more economically conservative than poor people. Socially, they're about the same. In... <coughs> Rich Democratic states like New York or California, rich people are a little bit more economically conservative than poor people, and they're also a bit more socially liberal than poor people. So the difference between rich and poor is different in this subtle way. But why is that linking into voting in a way that it didn't link into voting 30 years ago? Voters haven't changed much. <laughs> the states are similar to how they were before, rich and poor states, but the parties have changed. The parties have become much more polarized since the 1970s. Um, <coughs> we have a whole chapter about this, lots of poll data showing that Democrats and Republicans have diverged, and that's true even on issues where Americans are still somewhat moderate. 
that even if Americans are moderate, they've sorted themselves into liberal Democrats and conservative Republicans in a way that they haven't done before. Um, not as many of these of these people who don't belong as, as there used to be. Um, there are a few of these, these people left. My, my cousin in Connecticut is one of the two members of the Connecticut for Lieberman Party. Uh, so there are a few <laughs> such cases out there, but not so many. Now, so the way we summarize it is that rich people in rich states are conflicted. They, on average, are economically conservative and socially liberal. Uh, there's not such a conflict if you're rich in a poor state, on average, that, that, pretty, much, <coughs> that pretty much goes together. Um, <coughs> now, now that we've explored the paradox and how it's, how it's arisen over the past 20 years and how it's, connected to, how it's connected fundamentally to people's political attitudes, I want to connect this to some deeper ideas about economic status and political beliefs. George H.W. Bush, when he was first running for president, was quoted as saying, I don't know that atheists should be considered citizens, nor should they be considered patriots. Mm -hmm. This is one nation under God. Well, what's interesting about this quote, <coughs> it's not so much who said it, but that, that any leading politician could say such a thing, that it's considered acceptable it's acceptable to make such a statement that religion has this central role, at least perceived to have a central role in American politics. Now, but beyond that, beyond religion being a factor, explaining, predicting that, predicting Republican vote, there, there are two key storylines of how, how it fits into politics. The first is we call the opiate of the masses, and that's very simple. Rich people vote the way they should vote. They're rational, and poor people vote based on God, guns, and gays. They get suckered into doing that, and they forget to vote the way they're supposed to, to do that. Now, the other story is post-materialism. Post-materialism says that as you, as you get better off, you can afford to vote based on social issues. Um, and at, and at, at the state level also, the idea is as a state or gets richer, uh, people in that state can afford to have a politics of post-materialism. They don't need to worry so much about economics. It be economics becomes lowered down. Now, the funny thing about these two stories is that <coughs> they, both, they both sort of sound right in a way. Like, you hear people saying both of them, but they completely contradict each other. At the individual level, both stories can be true, but in aggregate... Um, in the aggregate, social issues can't matter more for rich people and also matter more for poor people, right? That's just, that's just not possible. Well, as we like to say, our comparative advantage, what do the data say? So the data say, uh, say no to the opiate and yes to post-materialism. Well, um, what we're plotting here is the probability that you vote for Bush um, as a function of your income and among three categories of people, church regular church attenders, occasional church attenders, or non-attenders. What we see is that the difference <coughs> throughout, people who go to church are, much, are more Republican than people who don't go to church. But among the rich people, there's a huge difference. Church, rich church attenders are much, much more Republican than poor church attenders. Among the poor, <coughs> there's, there's not much difference at all. 
And that completely is consistent with a post-materialism story. There's a lot of other data about this. For example, <coughs> um, the elusive Latino vote. Latinos are well known to be socially conservative on many issues, such as abortion. It's true. It's also true <coughs> that if you ask Latinos what are the what is the important issue, the most important issue in what you're voting for, I think one percent, two percent say abortion. So they're conservative on abortion, but they don't vote based on abortion. Uh, similarly, as you become richer, it, it becomes more seemingly becomes more feasible to vote in that way. <coughs> Now, I know we've brought up a lot, and, and there's, there's a lot more in, in the book, um, but I'd like to leave you thinking about three things. Um, first, that Democrats win the rich states, but Republicans do better among richer voters within each state. Second, that the culture war is real. There, there are differences between consumers of, um, and between liberals and conservative, cultural liberals and cultural conservatives, but it's concentrated in the upper half of the income distribution. And finally, um, one reason that people get, I think people get confused about, the, uh, people get confused about this is that journalists tend to be in the upper end of the income distribution, the ones we hear from, and so they're more attuned to the culture war. And second, because the media center states don't look like the rest of the country. And income matters more um, in poor, conservative, less educated states, but less in richer, more liberal states with higher levels of education. And so if, if we've refuted some stereotypes about Republican Demo and Democrats, and if we've given you some sense of how the scientific study of polls and elections gives you insight into how people vote, then I think we've done our job for today. Um, and it's, it's been a, a pleasure being here, and I look forward to hearing the discussions and then following that, your own questions. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, now uh, allow me to introduce our next speaker. I'm going to boot up his presentation here. There we go. Got uh, to comment on all this uh, sort of public opinion analysis. Uh, one of uh, our uh, leading scholars of public opinion, Michael P. McDonald, uh, who is an associate professor of government and politics in the Department of Public and International Affairs at George Mason University and a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He received a Ph.D. in political science from the University of California, San Diego, and a B.S. in economics from Caltech. Uh, his interests include voting behavior, redistricting, Congress, American political development, and political methodology. And on the practical side of politics, uh, Professor McDonald has worked for the National Exit Poll Organization, consulted to the U.S. Election Commission, consulted to the Pew Center for the State, served on campaign staff for state legislative campaigns in California, Virginia, and other states, and has been a media consultant for uh, the sort of big media channels. So he is uh, a perfect person to comment on the book. Please help me welcome uh, Professor Michael McDonald. Well, if Andrew knows much less than Michael Barone, I know much less than Andrew. So uh, I feel very humble uh, commenting on his work. 
Uh, this is actually a wonderful uh, book, and I uh, recommend that you read it. Uh, he raises several interesting questions that I think need to be addressed, and hopefully I will address some of those questions here, at least uh, raise some questions that make, will, will make you uh, think a little bit deeper. And uh, what's also uh, commendable, commendable about this is that he's attempting to bring political science and statistics actually back into the discussion of politics. I think all too often we have pundits who are on television who uh, pundit, <laughs> punditize. They don't actually know much about what they're talking about sometimes, it seems. So uh, injecting a little truth into the discussion uh, may be uh, rel you know, useful in the long run. I know in my own uh, research on voter turnout that uh, uh, I dispelled a myth that voter turnout was going down, and uh, actually that was presented here at uh, Cato, among other places. Uh, and so there is opportunity sometimes for us pointy-headed academics to inject a little bit of uh, information into the, the sphere of knowledge, and uh, sometimes these, uh, these media pundits actually pay attention to it. So hopefully that's what will happen with this book as well, because it is a wonderful book, and it is a, a really great attempt to try and bring uh, political science uh, into uh, the actual public discourse. Um, so that said, I, you know, you always take the dagger you know, out, and then you stick it in the back after you say the wonderful things. Um, I want to uh, uh, address um, uh, address this uh, in the way in which um, that uh, Andrews approached this. He's looked at states, and I think that there is some in the book. If you read it, there is some analysis below the state level, but I think that's an interesting place to start looking at finding out what's really going on within these states. And we might I have some data that I'll show you that may illuminate this now. I didn't write a book, so I, I've only had like a couple weeks or actually a couple days to prepare all this. So I don't have as much uh, evidence to, to present as uh, Andrew, but hopefully I'll present some things that will make you uh, start thinking. And I've titled this, What's the Matter with Cairo? Um, now, so people in, uh, who aren't from Illinois wouldn't know that, that may think that's Cairo, um, Cairo but Cairo is how uh, the El people from Illinois uh, pronounce that, and that's at the southern tip of Illinois. And so what I want to really look at is why is it that these people down at the southern part of Illinois in this blue state tend to be red, and maybe I'll tease out some information also of what's going on around Chicago which where we see divergent patterns among wealthy as well. So, um, and of course... Uh, Andrew's book, in, in some ways, is not just a response to pundits, but also a response to Thomas Frank and others who are saying, well, raising this question, what's the matter with these people? If they're poor, why is it that they're voting for the Republicans? And so I do think that it's an important voice in that conversation. So, again, we're, we start off with states. This is a graph from, uh, from Andrew's book of, of income inequality across the states where the, the darker states tend to have larger levels of income inequality. And what I want to do is look at a lower level of aggregation, uh, looking at the county level uh, is one way of looking at this. And he does some county level analysis. But as you can see, the difference between states in counties, there's actually a lot of income inequality that's going on within counties, even if states may not have a lot of income inequality. So there's something going on within states that's interesting, and maybe if we even drill further down, we might find uh, be illuminated even further about what's going on. So what I've done here is I've plotted out the median income, uh, 1999, this is, comes from the 2000 census, uh, by census track in Cook County and some of the surrounding uh, color counties. Here, blue would be a... Uh, in our thinking, would be poorer and thus more Democrat, so that's why I've chosen blue, and red would be 
wealthier and more uh, Republican. So you can see that there's this central part of um, Cook, uh, the city of Chicago, which not surprisingly has a lot of minorities in it, and that tends to be the poorest areas of Chicago. And if you go up along the North Shore and if you go further out into the uh, Chicago suburbs, out into the collar counties, you'll see that uh, there's a lot of red out there. People are wealthier. So what's going on with those wealthy people and how are they voting? So here what I've done is I've plotted by census tract again the 2000 presidential vote. And so what you see here is, again, you see that central part of Chicago is voting Democrat, as we might have expected, given their income levels. But look at the interesting thing that's going on along the North Shore. There are some Democrats up there. Those are wealthy Democrats who are, you know, and then we go out in the further suburbs. No, those wealthy people out in the suburbs are actually uh, voting Republican. So, again, just to kind of put these two side by side, you can see there are these wealthy people along the shoreline, these latte-sipping uh, Democrats, who tend to be voting uh, uh, Democrat, and, but they're different from the people who are uh, further in on the suburbs. And if we look at the, the state as a whole, you know, most people live in Chicago, so you know, this, these maps are always a little uh, uh, misleading because uh, there's so much population concentrated in the, in the upper right-hand corner of the state. However, if we look at the state as a whole, this is, again, this is median income plotted out by census tract throughout the entire, entire state. Again, here's Cairo, in case you're not familiar with Illinois. Uh, Cairo looks a lot alike uh, the central part of Chicago. I mean, it's, it's low income, and uh, they are, uh, the, and, and so in terms of income, they're, they're very much like uh, uh, the communities within the central part of Chicago, but look how they're voting. They are not voting Democrat. They are voting uh, Republican. Uh, and if you go, again, you look at the, where the Democrats are, they're located primarily in the central city of Chicago, and they're also kind of scattered about East St. Louis as another area of Democratic stronghold. Then you can find these little blue dots that are scattered throughout. Those are some of the medium-sized cities within the state of Illinois where you can also find some Democrats. So, um, yeah, it looks like Democrats are in urban areas, and uh, Republicans tend to be in rural areas. So maybe there is something to the fact that there's a difference between the blue states, which tend to be more urban, and the uh, uh, red states, which tend to be more um, rural in character. So again, what is the matter with Cairo? I guess we could also say, what's the matter with uh, um, Evanston or, or some other uh, city on the north shore of uh, Illinois, because these are where we're seeing the divergent patterns in uh, income and uh, voting for president. So Andrew uh, presented a lot of information that's drawn from exit polls. And uh, as was alluded to in the uh, introduction, I actually do work for the exit poll service, and um, I'm responsible for calling the election outcome. So uh, I, I know these exit polls very well. And it's important to understand what these exit polls are, is that they are not a random sample of every voter within a state. That would be very difficult sort of enterprise to pull off. You'd have to have pollsters at every uh, polling place interviewing people as they come out of the polling place, and that's just way too expensive. So what we do is that we select certain precincts within areas within states, and we select them on two different criteria. One is a geography criteria, and one is a partisan criteria. And from these representative precincts, this is where we're doing the random sampling. And we use that 
that sort of uh, random sampling of these representative precincts then to project forward what's happening within the state as a whole. So um, uh, perhaps since we can, we know that there are certain regions within states that are being uh, surveyed. Maybe we can leverage this aspect of the exit polls to get a little bit more knowledge about what's going on within these states. And so that's what I've done here. Um, and it, there's, I've color coded. So I've, what I've done here, and it's always good. I have a typo here, so it's good to, for you to look at it closely to understand. There's a typo and. Uh, and so it's a good teaching tool I do with my students. No, that's, it's a typo. Um, but in any case, uh, the, that should be for people who make less than $100,000 and for people who made more than $100,000, the vote for Kerry and Bush in the 2004 exit polls, and then the uh, uh, difference between the Kerry vote minus the Bush vote. So if you look at Chicago, which is where we would have found that uh, – that North Shore area, you see that the uh, wealthy people there gave 38% of their uh, vote to uh, carry, uh, or, or at least a difference, I should say, um, pro-carry advantage of 38 percentage points. And then you, know, you look at the poor people, they are, much as to what uh, Andrew uh, raises, they are more likely to vote Democrat. In fact, that shows up across the board, that you'll find that the poor people do tend to be more Democrat than the, the wealthy people, depend, de, regardless of which region within a state you're looking at. But now start looking at the Cook suburbs, and you start seeing these numbers decline. Um, and if you go out to the collar counties, here we see rich people in, uh, who are making more than $100,000 uh, are actually giving Bush uh, an advantage. And if you go into the North, well, the numbers seem to be a little bit screwy here, but uh, I think that's because there were so few rich people in the north area, which is the white area, number four. And then in the south area, look how um, we see, again, that uh, uh, wealthier people are a little bit less likely uh, to be supportive of Kerry than the poor people. Again, I, I wouldn't read too much into the exact numbers here because in some cases there are small sample sizes of, uh, of wealthy people, particularly in the southern region, because remember I just showed you a map that showed the median income was very low in, that, in the Cairo region of Illinois. But this does suggest to me that there is something fundamentally different that's going on in Chicago than what's going on in the rural areas of Illinois. And some of the, uh, the estimates that uh, Andrew is producing, these lines that he's producing, are averages that are averaging all of these people together. So when you average that, you do tend to get perhaps a, a flatter distribution within Illinois between the rich and poor people because they're behaving differently in different parts of the state. And I've done this also for uh, Connecticut, where you see the large cities, you see a larger gap between Kerry and Bush, and you look at um, uh, among uh, rich people, and if you go into the, the rural areas, uh, rich and poor, and if you go into the east rural areas, you still find a Kerry advantage, but yet the advantage is smaller. So even in this highly urban state of Connecticut, you're finding this pattern emerges where rich people and poor people alike tend to support carry less uh, than you find in the more urban areas. And this is true in Ohio as well, and it's true in Mississippi as well. So in Mississippi, we see across the board that um, uh, there's very strong support for Bush 
among uh, the wealthiest people. And what you do see, though, is that uh, the Jackson and Delta area. Now, Jackson, I used to live in Yazoo City, Mississippi. It's where I went to high school. So I, I lived in the Mississippi Delta, and I know a lot about this. So uh, Jackson is the largest city within the state, and that Delta region is where you have the highest concentrations of African Americans. So in some respects, it's not surprising to find that uh, you would find that Kerry did best among the uh, Delta area of Mississippi. So maybe there's something going on with race. And again, to give Andrew his due, he does look at this issue and does find the differences between rich and poor are mitigated somewhat if you uh, take into account race. But again, it looks like to me that perhaps what's going on in Mississippi uh, could be slightly affected by the way in which um, we have a large number of African Americans uh, being averaged in with white people in the other regions of the state. And so we get a little bit different estimates, perhaps, if you um, had approached this in a different way. So some thoughts to ponder here. Um, as I said, Connecticut appears to be distinctive from Mississippi uh, by the urban and rural character of these states. And so what might be useful here is to, um, uh, and you see it in the other states like Illinois and Ohio, so um, there's something going on in, uh, in Mississippi that's different than what's going on in Illinois, even if we look at the more rural areas of Illinois. But I would suggest to Andrew, and maybe this is something that he can do in the future, is to start breaking down these exit polls because we have this region component to it. We can start breaking these down by urban and rural areas and maybe suburban areas as well and look at the voting patterns and maybe tease out some more interesting things about what's going on. Still, I would emphasize, though, that Andrew is absolutely right that rich people do tend to vote more Republican than poor people. So the basic premise that he has here is true. I just want to say maybe we can look a little bit further down look, uh, uh, and scrutinize this a little bit more, and we may even find out some more interesting things about the way in which the American electorate behaves. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Let's close the lid on that. Uh, finally, let me uh, introduce our Last speaker, uh, Cato's own Brink Lindsay, who's Vice President for Research here at the Cato Institute, and most recently the author of The Age of Abundance, How Prosperity Transformed American Politics and Culture. Uh, Brink's writings uh, are widely published in popular venues such as the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, the New Republic, National Review, Weekly Standard, and he appears regularly on TV and radio on such venues as CNN, MSNBC, CNBC, BBC, NPR, PBS, and even C-SPAN. So please help me welcome Brink Lindsay. Thanks, Will, and thanks to all of you for being here today. Uh, and thanks to uh, Andrew and Boris and others uh, for writing such a great book. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, it's just... Uh, chock full of juicy and interesting facts, uh, many of them uh, delightfully toppling uh, big chunks of the prevailing conventional wisdom. So I really got a lot out of it. Uh, I don't have a PowerPoint uh, presentation because I don't have any data. Uh, my, uh, my job here today is to, is to elaborate on the analytical side of things, uh, to try to integrate some of these facts uh, into a bigger picture of what's going on. Reading through this book, I, I enjoyed it so much because it felt like reading a puzzle. I was Every time I encountered some new bit of data, I was thinking, well, what does this mean? What's going on here? How does this all fit together? 
So it was really, uh, particularly since some of it uh, was was quite new to me and uh, and counter to my own uh, uh, media-fed uh, stereotypes about how the electorate's been behaving. So very thought-provoking, uh, especially for me, uh, because it sheds new light on a subject uh, that I examined in some detail in uh, my book, The Age of Abundance, which tells a narrative history uh, of the United States, uh, telling the story of the cultural changes uh, which have given rise to the red versus blue phenomenon. So let me start with uh, what I consider to be a few of the more important facts that Andrew and Boris uh, have uncovered. Uh, Fact number one, uh, in general, rich people are more likely to vote Republican than poor people. Uh, This, this, but this wrinkle of how this changed over time wasn't in one of their graphs. Uh, This tendency was quite modest uh, in the 50s and 60s. Uh, It then grew sizable uh, during the 70s and 80s. So during the 70s and 80s, uh, rich people's tendency to vote Republican uh, intensified. Uh, But then in the 90s and O's, uh, that tendency grew even more pronounced in poor states uh, while it declined in middle-income and richer states. So rich people diverged in their tendency to vote Republican in the 90s and O's very sharply. Uh, Fact number two, as we've heard, uh, more religious people are more likely to vote Republican, uh, and this is pronounced amongst richer people, and that this religion gap opened up at the same time uh, as the red-blue gap in the 1990s. Uh, Fact number three, uh, in red states, uh, rich people are more socially conservative uh, than poor people, uh, even though generally poor people may be more socially conservative than richer people. Uh, And in blue states, rich people are more socially liberal uh, than poor people. And so to sum up these facts, and here I'm quoting Andrew and Boris, uh, cultural differences between states boil down to differences among richer people uh, in these states. Now, here's how I think these facts fit together in a historical context. Uh, What we are talking about is an ideological conflict among members of the socioeconomic elite. And it makes sense uh, that the red state, blue state phenomenon Uh, boils down to differences among richer people, uh, because the fact is that only elites are capable of having ideological conflict. Indeed, only elites are capable of having uh, what we would call ideologies at all. Political science research, uh, going all the way back to uh, Philip Converse's uh, seminal 1964 paper on uh, the nature of mass belief systems and uh, confirmed again and again, uh, show that only a relatively small minority of Americans are informed enough about politics to have a truly coherent uh, ideology or any kind of ideological coherence to their views. Uh, The vast majority of people have political opinions that aren't consistent across issues or over time and that rest on an almost bottomless sea of ignorance about the relevant facts and alternatives. Uh, So to figure out what's going on with this elite ideological conflict, uh, I think we need to refer to the work of political scientist Ronald Englehart, and uh, he is cited frequently uh, in this book, uh, but I want to put him to a little bit different use uh, than Andrew and Boris did. Englehart is famous for documenting a connection in countries around the world uh, between the rise of mass affluence on the one hand uh, and more liberal social attitudes on the other. Uh, Englehart also documents uh, that this postmodern cultural shift, and that's Englehart's uh, terminology, that this postmodern cultural shift often provokes a backlash uh, in defense of traditional beliefs and morality. Here in America, Englehart's schema uh, appeared as if on cue 
in the 1960s uh, when kids raised in post-war prosperity, i.e. the baby boomers, i.e. the first generation in all of human history uh, to be raised uh, taking provision of their basic material needs more or less for granted. Uh, When these kids started coming of age, some of them uh, staged a spectacular and radical challenge to traditional American bourgeois beliefs and practices across the board. This counterculture, or postmodern culture, then leached out of the college campuses and permeated throughout American society uh, during the 1970s. Meanwhile, at the same time, although very few people were paying attention at the time, another diametrically opposed cultural upheaval was taking place, the counter-counterculture of the evangelical movement, uh, which started gaining adherence rapidly in the 1960s, even as the mainline Protestant denominations were hemorrhaging parishioners. The conflict uh, between the postmodern shift, the counterculture on the one hand, and the traditionalist evangelical backlash uh, on the other had a geographic character uh, that makes perfect sense in Engelhart's framework. The embrace of secularism and social liberalism has been most pronounced in the richest, most economically advanced states uh, of the Northeast and the Pacific Coast, while the defense of traditional religion and morality has been strongest in the poorer states of the South and the Midwest. So why did all this take until the 1990s for this cultural conflict, for this geographic conflict, to surface in partisan politics? Well, first, it took a while uh, for these cultural changes to take hold uh, in the elites. There was generational change that that was needed. Uh, But also, uh, the conflict has been complicated by uh, the deep-seated contradictions in each rival ideology of left and right. The ideological left that emerged out of the social movements of the 1960s uh, combined an embrace of secularism and more tolerant social views with hostility to commerce and profit-seeking enterprise. Thus, uh, the left, the new left, attacked the very institutions that were creating the prosperity that was making possible uh, the postmodern shift in which they were participating. Meanwhile, the right uh, combined an embrace of free markets and smaller government with its defense of traditional religion and morality. Thus, it celebrated the economic dynamism of capitalism while decrying the cultural dynamism that capitalism was producing. This amounts to supporting the cause and opposing the effect. I would add, though, that even though there was a philosophical incoherence to these ideologies, there was a kind of sociological coherence uh, 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 to it, because the poorer states were also, at the time, uh, the fastest-growing states. You had catch-up growth, booming growth in the Sun Belt in the South uh, and the uh, Southwest, Uh, and so it made sense uh, for these areas to be more inclined to embrace uh, economic dynamism, uh, because they were getting rich off of it. So, during the 1970s and 80s, there was a raging political debate over economic policy uh, that began with the economic woes, the stagflation of the 1970s, and continued through the next decade. Uh, The New Deal order, uh, the New Deal economic order that had been the subject of a more or less bipartisan economic consensus uh, for decades uh, was falling apart, and there was a fundamental question of whether to move uh, toward a more market-oriented political economy or whether to double down on statism. During this time, a lot of wealthy social liberals uh, held their noses about social issues and supported the right's economic policies. 
They did so for reasons that come straight out of Engelhardt. Social liberalism is a luxury good. It's a byproduct of economic dynamism. But when that dynamism is threatened, uh, as it was in the 1970s, issues of material security become paramount. As Andrew has said, the wealthy have traditionally tended to support Republicans as the party of business and smaller government. And why wouldn't they support an economic system that's done well by them? Uh, Why wouldn't they uh, oppose radical government intrusions in that system? Why wouldn't they uh, prefer lower taxes and keeping more of their own money? So that all makes sense. This understandable tendency, though, uh, was quite muted uh, during the economic policy consensus and prosperity of the 50s and 60s, but when economic issues uh, became more salient and partisan differences more pronounced, the wealthy trended back to Republicans, regardless of what state they were in. Uh, But beginning with Clinton, uh, economic policy differences began to become less important. Clinton, to a considerable degree, consolidated the so-called Reagan Revolution, but actually a bipartisan shift in policies away Uh, from uh, more heavy-handed regulation of markets. Nobody uh, with any hope of power since Clinton uh, has wanted to return to 70% or 90% tax rates. Nobody with any hope of power has wanted to undo the economic uh, deregulation of the 70s and 80s. Uh, In short, nobody wanted to propose a fundamental alteration of the economic order that has been so beneficial for the well-to-do over the past generation. And, as a result, wealthy social liberals in the blue states have been drifting back into the Democratic column. Uh, And this is, I think, the punchline of the story, and it's a punchline I'm stealing from my colleague Will, who put it uh, first in a blog post a couple of months ago. I think you were commenting on uh, Jonathan Chait's uh, not-very-good book uh, about supply-side revolution. It appears to be the case uh, that low taxes and deregulation uh, have made the Democratic Party safe uh, for rich people. Uh, And uh, with that interesting conclusion. I'll close and look forward to questions. Thanks. Um, we've started a little late, so uh, I, and, and I want to make sure that we have time for questions. So would you like to have a really brief response, Andrew, or wait until questions to sort of pick up the threads? I'll say something really brief. Okay. Um, you can just go ahead and do it. Right okay. And I'll questions. Um, no, I, I appreciate having these one discussion sort of going digging deeper into what we did and going in the inside and then the second discussion coming from the outside. I re, Regarding Mike's comments, I just wanted to refer to some work that our collaborator David Park has done, which sort of since the book, looking within states, <coughs> um, we, um, we looked at California in detail. California is a good state to analyze because the California poll has a lot of data going way back, and we looked within California counties and, and between. And actually, we were surprised. We were looking at the red state, the rich-poor gap, and we were actually surprised to find that the rich-poor gap in California was pretty much, in voting, was pretty much large in, in all the counties. And a, a quick summary would be this, that the the if if you make $60,000 a year in California and you're in San Francisco, then you're going to be an extreme liberal. Um, and also you're not doing very well if you live in San Francisco. If you make $60,000 a year and you live in a poor county in California, you're probably one of the richer people in the county and you're probably very Republican. And within within counties, richer people are more Republican 
Uh, but between, you, you definitely see this pattern that at any given income level, being in a rich county is a signal that you're probably, you're probably doing not so great uh, relative to your neighbors and you're more likely to be a Democrat. And I definitely applaud the stuff that Mike did, and, and we, we do want to do more of that. Um, <coughs> regarding uh, the Brink's comments, I, I really like the, that historical perspective um, putting it together in that way about what about the parties sort of making it safe for people to vote in different ways. I just connect to that by saying social issues do come back to that because in poor states, rich people are very socially conservative, and so they don't they don't have any particular need. To, the Democratic Party might be safe for them, but they'd still prefer the Republicans. <laughs> which is sort of a generic answer to what's the matter with anybody or why does anybody vote for anything is that like probably because they have certain certain attitudes um, on issues, which I, I think we even when people are incoherent in their survey responses, I think we do have to sort of respect their responses, incoherent as they are, and say that a lot of low-income people are, so, are economically conservative. Mostly they're not, but enough are that they'll, they'll vote in a certain way. <laughs> and I'll... I'll, um, now I'd like to, you know, go to the questions. All right, let's. Uh, we've got about 15 minutes for questions from the audience. Um, uh, raise your hand, and I'll call on you. A, when I call on you, a microphone will come to you. Uh, please, uh, you know, state your affiliation if you'd like and your name, and please keep your question brief. And please be sure that it is in fact a question. <laughs> All right, uh, John, up here, at the top. Can we get a microphone to? Thanks. I'm John Samples from the Cato Institute, uh, and I'll add to the consensus that it's a, it's a very good book and well worth uh, purchasing. But I'd like to pursue something uh, that's suggested a few times in the book, uh, and it has to do with uh, the question of the things you've observed, the differences between states, the differences between rich people. Where did they come from? Why do they exist? You suggested a couple of points that there might have been a sorting process going on in which people who had uh, political differences were uh, and were best able to move, in fact, did. And in fact, there's some other evidence and uh, other books that have appeared about a sorting process going on geographically in the United States. It strikes me that this would give you an, a nice little model, which is the sorting comes first. And then people uh, live together, become more homogenous, become more intense about their views. And then the intensity among rich people about their views and that those cultural divisions are transferred to the parties so that the parties don't drive polarization but rather reflect it in a kind of market way uh, in terms of uh, voting. So what I basically – my question is I'd like you to pursue the, the notion of uh, – that's really suggested in the book about how, to what extent a sorting process is at the bottom of this. Um, no, I, I like that idea very much. I mean, we, we, we have said that as, um, at the high end of income, you're more likely to be able to move to a place that's culturally congenial to you. And if you're liberal, more likely to be in the East Coast or California. If you're conservative, maybe more likely to um, go to Iowa or, or, or some other place, just, just for example. But, <coughs> and 
that helps explain what happened 30 years ago, too, because my guess is that 30 years ago, uh, upper-income people were less likely to move by choice, maybe more likely to be transferred by their company um, to places where they might not want to live. So the idea that at a high end of income you have more choice, it's, it's sort of another level of post-materialism that you can decide where to live or stay put, or if you move to Texas, at least you can move to Austin, you know, or, or something like that. Uh, <laughs> the evidence that we have is that high-income high people are more likely to move between states and regions of the country. Low-income people are more likely to move locally, so they do seem to have less choice in where they go. We have not yet been able to get the data set that we want that would have, that would have um, party affiliation, where you used to live, where you live now, that would allow us to really nail that down. And, and so in the book, since we had enough hard data, we didn't want it we didn't want to pollute it with too much speculation, but we're, we're very excited about that area. Can I just add one more thing about um, uh, sorting? Um, so we, you know, now we associate uh, Republicans with a more conservative ideology, Democrats with a more liberal ideology. It didn't always used to be this way. So right, we had the solid Democratic South. Um, you had Republicans in the Northeast. You had Republicans in right, New Jersey, state where I grew up was uh, at one time a Republican state. California at one time was a Republican state, no longer. Uh, and so you didn't need to have massive movements of people to get this uh, resorting. So at the, uh, at the party elite level, there definitely has been a reshuffling of uh, the partisan character of, of ideologues. Um, and so at the, uh, at the public opinion level, that, that process is, is ongoing but still incomplete. Um, but... Uh, so there's definitely uh, this sorting process at both this individual level of people making choices and at the elite level uh, of elites deciding on a, a party label. Okay. Uh, yeah. Woman in the yellow shirt in the back. Hi, I'm Victoria Lynch. I'm wondering if you could speak to... Um, the role of marital status, and if you evaluated that in your analysis and um, constructed your income variables to account for that, because I see that in um, excuse me in a lot of electoral research, they don't account for it. And basically, the income categories these days are not—they're not really all that comparable to the past when people were reporting their household income, and it was just uh, one man working, one woman at home. And these days, a lot of these so-called rich families are really um, like two $50,000 two-wage earning households. (coughs) Also with marital status highly correlated with uh, voting preference. Um, um, We've done some analysis separating things out by different by different marital statuses. We looked at the um, actually this is another thing that David Park did uh, that came out it's been done after the book came out uh, he looked at the difference between rich and poor and how they vote among married people, unmarried people, divorced, and, and so forth. And we did find that we haven't done the full by red states and blue states analysis, but just on the rich and poor voters analysis, we do find that among <coughs> married people, if you just look at married people, you do see that there's a big gap between how rich and poor, rich families and poor families vote among the married. And among <coughs> people who are uh, unmarried also. Interestingly, if you look at people who are, quote, living as married, and we haven't 
it's still raw research, so we haven't really checked this. There you see it the other way. Among people who are living as married, it's the richer people who are, more, who are actually more democratic. And now how much of that is, is gay people or, or, or heterosexuals cohabiting, I'm not sure. Like that's, you know, in a sense why it's not in the book, right? <laughs> but I think you're right that you definitely want to be breaking that out, especially because there are differences, um, you know, big differences between married and unmarried people and how they vote. Um, down here, Ilya. State your question. Right. We can restate it. Um, among, among education groups, there is a, a U-shaped curve that Democrats win among the, the people with postgraduate education and the people with, with the least education, and Republicans win in the middle. It's a, a flatter relationship. It's sort of the difference between the most Democratic group is maybe 54% Democratic, the most Republican group is maybe 54% Republican. So <laughs> looking at education by itself, it's pretty flat. We tend to think the, high, the way to think of high educated groups is not to think of people like statistics professors, um, but rather to think about <coughs> um, nurses and teachers um, and a bunch of other people, social workers, who have graduate degrees. Um, and the upper educated people who are Democrats tend to not be the, on average, tend not to be the richest. Among income, straight income, <coughs> the, highest, the over 200,000 uh, gave Bush something like 60, 65 percent of the vote. And it, is, it, it does go pretty steady as you go down to the low income. Um. I'd like to follow up on that real quick, if I could. One of the most interesting charts in the book, uh, I found to be the one that showed uh, changes in the party affiliation of different kinds of professions. So, uh, so I believe it showed that, that lawyers and doctors, certain kinds of professionals, uh, moved from being Republican voters toward becoming more Democratic voters, whereas small business owners or uh, moved from being more Democratic to being more Republican. So there's these shifts in the, the party identification of, uh, you know, fairly high-earning pro- professionals in different occupations and vocations. And I found that extremely interesting, and I, I wanted to ask you if you had a, uh, any speculation about what drives that. Um. I'll let uh, Boris do that one. Um, that's, a, that's a tough one, right? The sample sizes for, for, for lawyers and teachers might not be so, so high. But, um, you know, it's uh, the uh, lawyers, teachers, and such, uh, you might think, are, are professions that come into contact with, with government, uh, maybe want to, uh, are more politically involved uh, in, in, the, in the, their day-to-day work. Uh, small business owners uh, might have my desire less contact with government, um, 
uh, want government to, to, to keep away. Um, and so, right, so if you're, if you're a teacher, you know, you spend a lot of time worrying about uh, what, uh, about local elections and who's going who's gonna to get elected and who's going to be negotiating with you for salary increases. So, um, you know, these are uh, hopefully informed speculation, but right now we don't have too much data to explain these differences. Mm -hmm. I would, uh, I would suggest looking at which industries are most cartelized by licensing requirements. Mm -hmm. That would, that's my hypothesis. Uh, another question, this gentleman right here in the blazer and the red shirt. I'm Bill Klein from Washington, D.C. I have a question that I think is maybe relevant to some of it. I'm wondering where in these populations you've looked at the Bradley effect might live and uh, whether you have any comments about our upcoming election and how much of a fudge factor there should be when we look at polls. Yeah, who's going to win? <laughs> I, I have a colleague down the hall who, who uh, forecasts elections based on the economy and the polls, um, Bob Erickson, and, and he, I think he's giving um, Obama 52 or 53 percent of the vote, but with a big standard error, so he thinks Obama has about a two-thirds chance of winning. Um, the elections are, are, are pretty pre historically pretty predictable from the economy and, and who's the incumbent party. <coughs> um, the, a lot of the things that you hear in the press about of who's the vice presidential selection, what was the latest convention bouts, these are not things that – there's not really evidence that these things are, uh, have much effect at all um, on the election outcome. You might say that um, – Certain tactical decisions might have up to a 1% effect on the election, on the vote, which 1% is huge. It can determine the outcome of the election, um, but it's much smaller than these 10% swings in the polls that you're seeing every week. Um, people, are, people are deciding how they vote, ultimately based on where the parties stand. And a lot of the jumping around you see has to do with voters getting the information gradually aggregating the information that they know they're going to use. And I think it's a little bit like weather versus climate. And you can stare at the weather and see all the changes. Ultimately, things are, are somewhat predictable, although with enough uncertainty that um, we don't know what's going to happen. I, I'd like to address the Bradley effect because we actually don't see much evidence of it anymore. Um, it, it can you see arises. what Bradley effect is? Bradley effect is, uh, yeah, it was actually. It's, and it's also sometimes called the Bradley Wilder effect for an African-American governor from Virginia or an African-American mayor from Los Angeles, and how they uh, were doing rather well in the polls, but their elections were actually much closer than what people um, were saying in the polls. And so there's this idea that, well, there was racism, and people said they didn't want to vote for the African-American candidate. Uh, as I said, there's very little evidence to suggest that that's what's going on right now. Uh, one thing is that if you don't want to vote for Barack Obama, you can give all sorts of other reasons besides race. And so uh, there's a lot of cover for people who may be racist to give another answer. So that there's, uh, there's that. But also if you look at the 2006 uh, senatorial elections, uh, we don't see any evidence of it in those elections. Even in the most racially charged election uh, with Harold Ford, Harold Ford actually overperformed uh, the final pre-election polls. So he, the election was closer than what actually the uh, um, the victory that uh, Corker, the uh, Republican, was uh, forecast to win. So if anything, there was a reverse Bradley effect going on in that Tennessee race. And again, so we don't really see a lot of evidence in more recent elections. People can say that they're not going to vote against an African-American on other reasons like policy. 
I believe that takes us to the uh, end of our time. I want to thank our speakers, uh, Andrew Gelman, Michael McDonald, Brink Lindsay, and Boris Shore. The book is Red State, Blue State, Rich State, Poor State. You can purchase it out in the lobby. And I would like to invite you all up to the Winter Garden for sandwiches and drinks.